Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Good evening, everyone. It's great that you're able to be here with us. My name's Ken, if you haven't met me, um, especially if you are visiting or newish to Wollongong Baptist Church, we're really glad that you've chosen to be here with us or joining us on the live stream. This evening, as Kate has already got us thinking, we're starting a new series that we've called Perfect Mess. Now, if that triggers deja vu for you, that's a good thing. As Kate said in term four last year, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 7, and our series then was called Perfect Mess. Same picture, same everything. Uh, over the next nine weeks, we're going to take a look together at 1 Corinthians 8 to 16. Oh, dear. Really, really sorry about this. This is pretty embarrassing. It's a friend from Thailand, so I'll just really quickly take it and I'll, I'll be right with you. Hello? Sorry, Carp. Thai, Thai. Yeah, that's right. Uh, no. Huh? Huh? Yeah, Sanuk Mark. Sorry, I'm just about to preach, so I'll, I'll have to get back to you. I'll write to you and explain what you should do, okay? Bye. <laughs> now, obviously, that wasn't me talking to somebody. <laughs> but hopefully you do get the idea that reading through 1 Corinthians in many ways is like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. We have Paul's writing here in front of us. Sometimes, uh, in response to a question that the Corinthians had asked him directly, but at other times, we just don't know all the details of what he's writing in response to. In places, what he writes is further complicated because Paul's writing in the Greek language and we're not always certain how best to translate certain words that he uses or phrases. I used the term in my little talk there, sanukma. And, and it's a Thai word that doesn't really translate into any one English word. There's lots of overlap, but there's also distinctions as well. That means Sanuk Mark's the only way you can say it right. Now, the variety of translations of 1 Corinthians, key terms in that book, uh, should make us aware that a number of the issues 
in the book are not quite as cut and dried as some people would like to make out that they are. Now, another issue we have to be careful about is how we apply God's instructions that we find in 1 Corinthians. Again, despite some people's insistence, it's not as simple as God's word says do something and we just have to obey it. Often that is true. But sometimes the word-by-word implementation of the instruction action does not carry the same meaning in our culture as it did in the culture in which it was written. In fact, sometimes to do that would actually communicate the exact opposite. I think the classic example is putting oil in your hair when fasting. Matthew chapter 6 says that when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, if I come to church next Sunday with an unwashed face and oil in my hair, I'm pretty sure that everyone's going to guess that Ken is fasting. To obey Jesus' instruction, it's better for me to prioritise the explicit purpose and so refrain from putting oil in my hair. That's what it means to obey. Now, knowing what we're to do from 1 Corinthians can be even harder, as we often have to deduce the reason from the instruction. And so we have to take into account their culture as well as our own, so that we don't incorrectly apply something that's in contradiction of the intent with which it was written. And yet, despite all of these difficulties and complexities, we believe that this is God's perfect word to us. God knew exactly what he was doing when he had this letter written to a church that had lots of problems. He knew that we would be reading it 2,000, more than 2,000 years later, in a culture that was very, very different. The hard work that we will put in to understanding it help us, helping us, it will help us to think through how to where to live for Jesus in our time and place. And so I'm going to pray to that effect and invite you to join with me. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we thank you for the church uh, that Paul was part of a team establishing there. Thank you that he stayed there for a long time and taught them lots of things. And we even thank you for the problems that developed over time that meant that Paul wrote this letter and meant that we could have your word to us that would enable us to understand how we are to live in ways that honour you in our society. And so we do pray for this series. We pray especially for tonight as we look just at 1 Corinthians 8, that by your spirit you would enable us to understand and more than just know, growing in knowledge, enable us to actually do this, to live it out to your honour and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time that Christy, and I, that Christy and I went to Thailand back in 1998, we visited a university in Bangkok. While we were there on the campus, we saw students walking around something that looked kind of like a cross between a giant roundabout and a garden. We asked our Thai friends what they were doing. And the answer came as a bit of a surprise to us at that point. They were asking, these students were asking the spirit of the university for good results in their upcoming exams. 
instead of spending some time in the library or in a study group reviewing their notes, walking around and around and around this garden mound called a stupa was considered the essential way to prepare for exams. Now, that might sound to you like a very poor study technique. But over the years that we lived in Thailand, we saw all sorts of methods of asking the spirits for help. You could put a model horse next to the shrine of a deceased king who liked horses when he was alive. You could beep your horn of your car or your motorbike as you drove past a shrine. You could display a gold cat waving its arm to bring in good luck. Tattoos, amulets, spirit strings tied on your wrist, lucky numbers, auspicious days, bottles of red Fanta placed at the spirit house. The variety of options available to you to serve the spirits, to keep the spirits happy, is mind-boggling. And I think in 2022 Wollongong, that chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians is about as foreign to most of us as those kind of practices in Thailand. Food sacrifice to idols is something that we don't obviously come across in our daily lives, except for possibly when we go to an Asian restaurant that inevitably has a little shrine up the back of the restaurant somewhere. It may seem to us at first glance that in fact this passage, this whole chapter, is bordering on the irrelevant. But rather than getting an early mark and going home now, my suggestion is that we look at this passage by answering three questions. I know normally we only answer one, but tonight you've got three. First question, what was the issue for the Corinthian Christians? Question two, what corrective were they given? And then finally, how does this apply to us? So question one, what was the issue for the Corinthian Christians? Well, Corinth in the time of Paul, I think, was much more like Thailand than, than Wollongong is, in that keeping the spirits happy was just a normal part of everyday life. We know from history, more than we do from 1 Corinthians, that food, particularly meat, was a part of what Paul calls food sacrifice to idols, or simply idol food. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, the word sacrifice probably makes you think first of the Old Testament sacrifices. Many of us who are Christians have this mental picture of Israelites bringing a live animal, the priest slitting its throat and then burning the animal carcass on the altar in the temple at Jerusalem. And while there are similarities to Israelite sacrifice, in Corinth, food was sacrificed to idols in a much wider variety of ways. You could eat at a dining hall within the grounds of a, a whole variety of temples, and the food that was served to you had all been dedicated to the god of that particular temple. You could have a meal at your friend's house, and your host would pray thanking an idol for the food. Or when an animal was killed at the equivalent of our abattoir, it was done in a ritual way that presented the animal to an idol before it was then sold at the market. Food and religious practices were intermingled by mainstream activities. While today's supermarket offers us the choice of free-range eggs rather than cage-laid eggs, back then the standard food that you could buy at the market was food that was somehow connected 
with idol sacrifices. And so much of what you ate, whether you agreed with it or not, potentially communicated your reliance upon or gratitude to the idols. Now, as if that wasn't bad enough already, there were also significant social implications in addition to the explicitly religious ones. It would have been very hard for a Christian in Corinth to go out to a party or a a work function because the dining halls in these various temples were the places that all such meals took place in rather than at restaurants as we would do today. It could be very awkward to accept your neighbour's invitation to a meal at their place as they might pray to an idol at at the time of eating. If you then sat there eating nothing it would be taken as a major insult to their hospitality. And if you invited people over to your place, your guest, astounded at how good the meal tasted, could ask you where you bought the meat for the barbecue and your answer would potentially identify you as an idol worshipper. Christians in Corinth, by their actions, could unintentionally give the impression that Jesus was just one God amongst many gods that it was okay to trust in Jesus for some things, but you could also trust in idols for everything else. The extent of idol food in their society also complicated how Christians interacted. The Corinthian church was made up primarily or perhaps even exclusively of Gentiles, non-Jews, all from that first generation who had very relatively recently left their old ways of idolatry when they'd been introduced to Jesus and put their trust in him? Was eating this idle food a return to the old ways? Was it possibly a a new form of syncretism where you hedge your bets, trusting in both Jesus and the idol, mixing two religions together? Well, thankfully, as we learnt in 1 Corinthians 1-7, to Paul spent a long time at Corinth teaching the Bible. It was the church in the, New, in the New Testament that Paul spent the most time at. And the Corinthian Christians, or at least some amongst them, went to their Bibles and had come up with a clever solution to the problem. Have a look at verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. Now, the Greek that Paul wrote in doesn't have quotation marks, so we can't be certain which are Paul's words and which are the words that the Corinthians actually wrote to them. But in the end, it doesn't matter because according to the rest of the Bible, there is only one God, meaning that idols are nothing, something that the Old Testament even states explicitly. While the non-Christian Gentiles in Corinth believed that an idol could help them, in reality, the idol was nothing more than a block of wood or shaped metal. And so just as we might consider a garden roundabout in the middle of a university to be just that, a man-made structure, some Christians at Corinth had come to the biblical understanding that idols are nothing. And the application of that truth was that therefore you can eat at the temple, you can eat at your friend's place, You can eat food bought at the market with no qualms whatsoever. Doesn't matter. To which Paul responds, hold on a minute. It's true, but... Something can be true, a theological fact, 
But that doesn't mean that it's the only truth that matters. Paul agreed with the Corinthians that there is only one God, true. But more information was needed in order to determine how they should act appropriately. I can have $1,000 in my bank account, true fact, more than enough to pay for that new bike part that I've seen. But if the money is set aside for rego and insurance due later this week, it would be rather foolish to spend it on something other than what it's been set aside for. True, but. Now, likewise, Paul is not debating the truth of their claim. There is only one God, meaning that idols are nothing. True. But that truth is insufficient on its own. Another truth needs to be taken into consideration. Now, unlike my money example, at Corinth, the factor that they had overlooked or ignored was that old habits die hard. The Corinthians had grown up and still lived in a society dominated by idolatry, making the link between food and idols very deeply ingrained for all of them. Though the Corinthian Christians were being told that idols were nothing, for some, their lifelong habit and resulting ongoing feelings contradicted this truth. Some Christians, whether out of habit, or as Paul calls it, a weak conscience, verse 7, just couldn't untangle food and idols in their thinking and their feeling. When we did move to Thailand, one of the very first rules we learnt is that you always take off your shoes when you go into someone's house. It shows respect and is an unquestioned practice that absolutely everybody complies with. Over time, this behaviour became automatic to us, so much so that when we came back to Australia, we continue to practice the habit. Now, very few Australians expect me to take my shoes off when I come into their house, but I do it anyway, even though it isn't a social necessity here and though it doesn't communicate the same message that it does in Thailand. I'd only practiced this habit for a few years and it became ingrained. The Corinthians, on the other hand, had linked food with idols their whole lives. So it's not surprising that even after they became Christians, when they saw somebody else eating idol food, the natural assumption was that the eater is involved in idolatry. Because of the lifelong association, if they too went ahead and ate this food or even considered eating it, their conscience accused them of doing wrong, of falling into sin. Which we might think means that the Corinthian church needs a good sermon series and Bible studies to go along with it to clarify this truth. If only they had WBC instead of CBC, Corinthians Baptist Church. But point two, what was the corrective that they actually received? Rather than acting on a single, incredibly important truth that there is only one God, therefore the idols are nothing, the Corinthians had to consider an additional truth to determine how to act. That second truth was the impact of their own actions on another. Paul agrees that food in and of itself is inherently neutral. Verse 8. It does not, it cannot bring us closer to God, either by avoiding it or by eating it. But rather than hammering home this theological truth and its application, 
Paul introduces another important factor. What we eat and where we eat can have implications on someone who sees us eating. And so the additional question that the Christians, sorry, the Corinthians had to ask themselves was, what will my eating encourage others to do? What action will they copy or feel emboldened to do without necessarily having the same understanding that I have? As Westerners who live in a very individualistic society, I think that Paul's argument borders on the ridiculous. What do I care what others think of what I do? How dare they judge me for my choices? Now, while common, this attitude is clearly not Christian. We should. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8 says that we must care what others think. To work out how to behave in an idolatrous society, Corinthian Christians had to consider what impact their actions might have on another. Have a look at verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The problem was that if a Corinthian Christian went to a pagan temple and ate there on the basis of their knowledge that the idol is nothing, another person could observe their action and instead take the action as proof that idolatry is okay. The observer could then be encouraged to also participate in idolatry. And again, I think a current practice in Thailand may help to illustrate this. One of the most spectacular festivals in Thailand is called Loi Gratong. Gratong is the Thai name for a, a tiny little special boat that they make. They cut down banana trees, use a slice of it, make a boat, and to Loi means to float the boat in the river. Each November, the whole of the country goes to their local river and floats little boats like this down them. Now, a typical explanation, I just looked up a number of websites, suggests that people float a gratong in the river to get rid of misfortune and bad things that happened in the past and ask for good luck in the future. Now, in Chiang Mai, where we lived, this tradition has been adapted to also include, rather than the release of boats down a river, the release of lanterns up into the sky. If you have seen it, if you've been there or you've seen pictures of it, it is incredibly beautiful and was even used on the cover of the book celebrating the 100-year anniversary of Sydney Missionary and Bible College. But if a Thai Buddhist sees a Christian participating in Loi Gratong, which as we just read is an attempt to obtain forgiveness and ask for good luck, won't that communicate that Christians agree that we need something more than Jesus. If a new Thai Christian sees a more mature Christian seeking forgiveness by some other means than Jesus' death and resurrection in our place, won't that introduce doubts about how comprehensive the forgiveness won by Jesus is? Paul's language about the consequences of inadequately considered or selfish actions is intense. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. When I do something, even something that is theologically permissible, if the circumstances mean 
that it can be interpreted as, imp- as approving sin, my actions have the power to destroy my fellow Christian. An action in isolation can be morally neutral, but it becomes sin against Christ when it's expressed in front of others who misunderstand my motives. What this clearly shows is that sin is not simply a list of do's and don'ts. It is not enough to ask, does the Bible permit this? I also have to ask, what is the likely outcome when others see me act in a particular way? Paul's famous conclusion is in verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This conclusion is not a call for Christians to be vegetarians, but a requirement for us to prioritise love, a demand that Christians do consider the impact of their actions on others, of giving up their own rights if the exercising of that right will impact badly on another which Paul's going to go on to explore in the next two chapters in much more detail. But for now, our final point, how does this apply to us? While we're only only in Sermon 1 of our series, I'm guessing that you've noticed how complicated 1 Corinthians is. Lots of people would like a list, a set of instructions that can be followed to come up with the perfect answer for each and every situation. But the problem is that it depends. No two situations are identical, and so there are a range of factors we have to consider each time. One of those factors is the beliefs of the society that we live in. Paul insists that to eat meat was not sin in and of itself, and yet, if eating would cause problems for another, then he would willingly forgo eating meat. That was the appropriate response in Corinth because of the rampant idolatry. And many missionaries in Muslim-majority countries avoid pork in order to not offend their Muslim neighbours. Same action, actually quite a different reason. But in Australia, I don't think that anyone will conclude that you trust in idols even if you go and eat at the local Chinese restaurant. What we need to be asking ourselves is what behaviours have the potential to make our neighbours think that we trust in something other than Jesus. And this is where it's essential for us to acknowledge that idols are not only little gold statues that can be put on a shelf. Often, they are invisible desires that reside in our hearts. Could our investment portfolios, our focus on higher education, our collection of luxury trinkets betray that we think of them as the most valuable thing in our life. Idols can be physical objects, but they can also be people or sports or number of followers on Instagram. And so I think 1 Corinthians 8 calls us to prayerfully examine what we trust in, what we give highest importance or allegiance to. And more than that, to ask, could the way we focus on these things lead someone else into an idolatrous focus on them. Another factor that we have to consider is what behaviour is being debated. 
When someone disagrees with what we believe about a behaviour, do we have to submit to the other person's opinion every time? Now, because we don't read 1 Corinthians 8 by itself, the answer is a resounding no. Some Christians in the early church insisted that all Christians must be circumcised or they couldn't be saved. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 15. But rather than making allowances for their misguided belief, Paul rebuked it as a betrayal of the gospel. The principle in 1 Corinthians 8 does not say that absolutely anything is permissible or that the only thing we have to ask is how does it impact on another. And so adultery, for example, will always be sin. And no matter how much our society takes offence at that statement, their feeling that that's too harsh doesn't mean that we should attempt to recategorize it as somehow acceptable to God. 1 Corinthians 8 is not a justification for us to stop talking about sin, to stop identifying it as mankind's biggest problem. In fact, it demands that we not only keep speaking about it, but make sure that our actions back up what we say about it. Now, it's also necessary to recognise that this is not simply about preferences. Unfortunately, this principle doesn't allow me to insist that you all start loving cycling instead of watching the football. The issue at stake must be able to be perceived as missing the mark, not living as God would have us live, of sinful behaviour. And so what style of music should be played at church isn't answered by 1 Corinthians 8. Neither is what time you should do your quiet time. But this, I think, is where it gets really complicated because Christians do take different perspectives on what classifies as sin. A difference of beliefs over what sin is is exactly what triggered the issue in Corinth. Some thought eating idol food was sin, even though it wasn't sin. And so returning again to my example of Loi Gratong, some Christians in Thailand hold that the original meaning of Loi Gratong is not in mind as people enjoy the festival these days. As many non-Christians in the West celebrate Christmas with no thought whatsoever of Jesus' birth, so people can float a Gratong with no spiritual meaning. And if it's not designed to get rid of sin or to ask for good luck, isn't it therefore okay to do? Now, likewise, in our culture, the debate bubbles away about whether going to the pub or drinking socially can lead the weak, verse 9, to think that alcohol is okay, resulting in them slipping back into getting drunk, which the Bible clearly forbids. Others will see the origin of heavy metal music as satanic worship, while others just love the style. Some will argue that a certain style of clothing shows the appropriate respect at church, and to be too casual is to disrespect God. Some will say that politics is an individual preference, while others will point out policies that condone and facilitate sin. There may be a hundred issues in your mind right now that I haven't even mentioned. And you might be thinking, how do I determine which of the issues on which I should lay down my rights? And when does an issue become so crucial that we will insist that there is only one right response? 
Well, you've got to come back over the next few weeks because Paul's going to give us more details. Chapter 8 is just the start of an explanation that lasts until at least chapter 10. But what is already clear at this point is that our responsibility is to both please God and to love our neighbour. And if we go right back to verse 1, a big part of the answer of what we should do lies in who we prioritise. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This word builds up or edifies is going to become a key term in determining how we act that reappears almost like a chorus throughout 1 Corinthians. Originating in the construction industry, edification is about putting effort into constructing a building, bringing it up to completion. And applied to people, it means that rather than acting in our own interest, Christians will prioritise building others up. If we, if we go away, walk out those doors tonight with simply more knowledge, the danger is puffed up people. If we go away from tonight seeking to edify others, the danger is that we might have to give up some of our rights. Which danger are we going to take on? Let's pray. Lord God, we again give thanks for the letter of 1 Corinthians, that it is part of your word to us, that enables us to know you and to know ourselves, to know how we should live in a society that loves to trust in themselves, that love to trust in other things than you. Lord, we want to live for you. We recognise and understand that Jesus died so that we could be in right relationship with you. And we want to live a right response to that in a society that wants to reject that fact. Help us to not only understand these words, uh, but to think deeply about the implications of them for what we are currently trusting in. Search our hearts and expose to us the reality of where we have gone wrong. And if we've treated others wrong by the way that we've acted, help us to repent of that and help us to start living in a way that would build others up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.